Hi everyone, and welcome to NAIS Member Voices. I'm Scott Donaldson. Over the next two months, we're going to be doing something a little different. Starting this month, we're excited to feature two episodes devoted to enrollment trends amidst the pandemic and hosted by my colleague at NAIS, Joe Corbett. Joe is a research analyst at NAIS and was also one of the authors of this year's NAIS trend book. I'll let Joe take it from here. All right. Thanks very much, Scott. As Scott mentioned, my name is Joe Corbett. I'm a research analyst here at NAIS, and a lot of my work focuses around enrollment trends, admissions, demographics, everything that contributes to a school's ability to you know, maintain enrollments and make sure that, that students are in the building learning. And so in this first episode this week, we're going to be really focusing on one of the big trends that sort of has been facing schools over the past several years and has sort of been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is this idea that in the lower grade levels, particularly, we've seen sort of a, the signals of softening demands. We've seen um, lower levels of applications, lower levels of enrollment, uh, and generally sort of signals that there might be less interest, particularly in you know pre-K and, and the K to five grade levels. And so um, today in this first episode, we're going to be really focusing on these trends sort of on the ground, so to speak, within a school. And I'm going to be speaking with Dwayne Emery today, who is the Director of Enrollment Management at Sycamore School, um, which is located over in Indianapolis. And Dwayne had a really interesting experience sort of navigating the, the pandemic at a school that, that did happen to be affected by these trends and, and lost a fair number of students in the lower grade levels due to the pandemic. And so in this conversation, we're going to go ahead and explore sort of what happened over at Sycamore School and how Dwayne and the team were able to sort of adapt and, and handle the situation with uh, enrollment at the lower grade levels. So without that, I will turn it over to Dwayne. So Dwayne, great to have you. And maybe if you want to start, maybe just by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your school. Sure. It's uh, great to be a part of this conversation. And I work at Sycamore School, which is the only independent accredited school for gifted students in uh, preschool through eighth grade in Indiana. And so we serve a unique population of students who would be identified as, as gifted learners with relatively high IQs, of course. And this is actually my first year. I just finished one year at Sycamore School. I had been in enrollment management for 15 years previously at a large Catholic school here in Indianapolis, but made the move over last summer and I'm excited to be here and uh, interesting transition as I started this job uh, right in the middle of a pandemic. And in fact, my hire at Sycamore got announced about a week before schools in Indiana started shutting down. Oh, wow. So what, what was that looking like, uh, March or April around then? I would say it was looking very uncertain, unknown. At the time school started shutting down, we thought, you know, we might shut down for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, maybe come back after spring break. And that turned into the rest of the school year, of course. And then, you know, a lot of uncertainty for what would happen in the upcoming school year that, that you know, obviously now is just finished. Well, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting story then. And so I guess maybe it would be helpful maybe just to hear sort of generally about how that transition was and how sort of Sycamore School navigated that that year. What did things look like from, you know, a, a class picture where classes in person, you know, what, what was sort of going on with that? Sure. We actually put together a, a task force that had, I think, 23 people on it, uh, board members, faculty, staff, medical professionals, some parents uh, who were in some of those other roles. 
and and really put together a, a reopening plan and and with a lot of you know moving parts and a lot of uncertainty you know it seemed like data was changing and what we thought we knew changed on seemingly a daily basis if not a weekly mm-hmm. one so we put together a plan and and we ended up implementing a plan what, what we think was pretty successfully we ended up being in person the entire year with only a few exceptions the mayor of indianapolis at one point in time during the year required that all students in grades one through 12 in Marion County, which is where we're located, go into distance learning that lasted from mid-November-ish until the beginning of January. Other than that, we had a couple of grades, I guess three grades that had to move into our distance learning plan for a couple of weeks at a time each time. Um, but we had no student-to-student spread. And 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 so we we implemented a lot of safety protocols and 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 our teachers and parents did a great job. Our parents were phenomenal partners with us throughout this entire process. And, you know, we ended up with a, a, a really successful year. And, and that was that actually made it nice for us to be able to tell families along the way how well that was going. Because going back to, you know, the spring uh, and summer, we actually, the school made a decision to extend the, the what we might consider the drop dead date, the date you know, by which families had to either be committed to the year's worth of tuition or or not. And that normally had been the end of May here. And that got extended to July 15th because we knew we weren't going to publish our reopening plan until probably early July. Mm. So we published that plan on a Friday, I think it was July 10th. And uh, between that Friday and that Monday, I think we lost like 38 additional students. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we started the year with 336 students. Uh, we normally would start with 405 to 410. So, you know, we rightly so were panic stricken. But as the year continued, I mean, we, we actually ended up finishing the year with 375 students. And um, during the year, we saw 20 of those students who had withdrawn enrollment for the upcoming year, you know, due to the pandemic, we actually saw 20 of those students return during the year. And then we've had another, I think, 16 return for the 21-22 school year. So just a lot of moving parts. And I can certainly go into more detail about that. But, you know, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of moving parts. But at the end of the year, we learned a lot and about our school, and about ourselves. And we developed what i feel are very strong relationships with our families through that process. Mm, great. Well, glad to hear everything is sort of, you know, moving in the right direction. And, and so I think it would be really interesting to dive into sort of that enrollment picture a little bit more. And, and so what what we were talking about in sort of the last section of the, the episode was sort of this, this trend of enrollment in the lower grade levels. And, and it's been something where, you know, during the pandemic, it really was affected more than other, other grade levels, preschool in particular, but also, you know, the, the K through five grade levels were particularly vulnerable. And, and so how did sort of that drop in enrollment play out across the different grade levels offered at your school? We certainly took the biggest hit in our early childhood division, which would be for us preschool, pre-kindergarten and kindergarten, and, and in particular preschool and pre-kindergarten. Sycamore leading up to this year had had been fortunate enough to have pretty steady enrollment, not at absolute capacity in every grade, but at capacity in many grades. Full capacity would be 426, and we're pretty consistently starting with 410 or so on an annual basis. But, you know, we started the year with eight students in our preschool program. Mm -hmm. You know, so we went from having, you know, normally two sections with 
roughly 15 students per section with three adults in each of those classrooms uh, to having one classroom with our two lead teachers. And we then didn't have assistant teachers and that meant some employment related issues for some of those folks, right? Fortunately, you know, we, we ended the year with 17 preschool students, which is still a far cry from where we normally would be, but early childhood, you know, obviously, you know, bore the brunt of that. Although, you know, we certainly saw our younger students impacted more significantly. And even moving forward, as we look to next year, you know, we've got some families returning because their children now can get vaccinated and have done so. But we've got several families where they're waiting for students under the age of 12 to be able to be vaccinated. So it exacerbated what I know I've seen on a national level. It made that a reality for us. We hadn't really seen that reality. Um, We historically have not fully enrolled preschool and sometimes not pre-kindergarten. So I think we we would follow those national trends there. The, the pandemic certainly exacerbated that for, for many schools, including ours. Got it. Got it. And, and so I'd also be curious, what did those conversations with parents look like for parents who weren't returning to, to preschool? What was sort of going through their minds as they, they talked about that decision-making process with you all? Sure. Um, first of all, it was very painful for them. This was not an easy decision. It became very clear very quickly that the decision to not be here was not in any way, shape, or form, maybe with only three or four exceptions that I can think of. It was not an indictment of the performance of our school, how they felt about our academic program, our social-emotional learning activities, all those things that go into a good program. Um, It was not an indictment of that. And they made it very clear. Um, These parents were, I mean, literally crying with me on phone calls, on Zoom appointments. Um, You could almost feel the pain in the emails that some of them were sending us follow-up communication. And they made it very clear that they intended to return. Now, we did have fewer return than originally said they would return. And and, and I knew that. I expected that. But we tried to maintain really consistent communication with them throughout the year. So what really ended up happening is we developed probably a closer relationship with some of these families through the withdrawal and through them hearing us be very understanding. I mean, there were folks who who might have reacted a little bit, maybe out of a little bit more sadness or disappointment, or I don't want to say anger, but you know when you start losing more families than you would like, you know you can you can kind of get jaded probably and and feel I, I don't know maybe anxiety would cause you to to react less favorably and less positively. I had the unique advantage of being new to the school, so I didn't have the long-term relationships with the families. That actually probably helped me in the conversations, just kind of detach emotionally from it. And and I tried to be incredibly supportive of the decisions those families were making. I mean, they were sharing things with this new guy at the school that, you know, about their family's medical realities or the grandparents or, you know, something. I mean, the, the reasons that our families were giving us ranged anywhere from just general anxiety about what was going to happen, uncertainty, all that, to disclosing some things that they probably hadn't disclosed with the school previously about mm-hmm. their own children's medical needs or their own parental needs or grandparent needs. And, and what really struck me coming from a high school to a school for preschool through eighth graders was just how engaged those grandparents are in those students' lives. Many of them living in the same household, uh, but certainly being primary caregivers and, and that uncertainty with 
the health of elderly folks um, playing into the decisions. So our parents were were pained by the decision. They were nervous. They were afraid they wouldn't be able to get back into the school when they were ready. And so a lot of counseling was involved in that. And, and again, that built a relationship that allowed me to build some relationships with some families that, that I wouldn't meet until well later in the school year. And in some cases still have not met in person. Mm, got it. Got it. And, and, you know, that's, that's great that you were able to build those relationships and sort of be there for them in that way. And so it, it sounds like then it was more of a, you know, concern with the in-person learning and the, the safety of both the, the children as well as the, you know, the guardians, parents, grandparents, whoever else is sort of responsible for the children. Yeah, absolutely. It, they weren't disappointed with our school at all. And, and, and we knew when we made the decision, uh, our task force, I'll say we for that group, we made a decision, you know, to not offer a hybrid approach. We, we decided that we weren't going to ask our teachers to pull double duty and teach both in person and online. And that was even more critical for our school and our mission. You know, we, we require that all of our teachers pursue, pursue certification in gifted and talented education. You know, we educate a unique population, roughly the top three, four percent, five percent academically. And, and that takes some special skills on the parts of teachers to understand that group of students. And so you, you can't just pivot and add personnel to accommodate that because those folks wouldn't be trained, et cetera. So we made a decision to, to only go with in-person instruction. We knew had we made the decision to go only online instruction, we would have lost families that direction as well. So, so we knew it was a, a kind of a lose-lose proposition in terms of student enrollment, but we're really glad we made that decision. Our, our faculty had a much better year than, than I've heard faculty having at other schools, public and, and non-public in the area. I've got several friends in the area who are teachers, and, and, and it was not an easy year for teachers in general, yeah. uh, including ours, but ours probably had a little better go of it. And um, you know, so we knew our parents, we knew some would be unhappy with that decision. And it wasn't that they were really unhappy with the decision of the school. They just knew it didn't work for their unique circumstances. And, and there were enough of those that obviously it wreaked havoc on, 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 our, on our overall enrollment. But we, we felt like it would rebound, and it, and it certainly has. And, and so then sort of moving forward into the, the following months in the pandemic. So ha- two questions sort of first, how did you handle the, the staffing in sort of all that uncertainty, especially with the lower grade levels that, you know, didn't have the, the students anymore? And how did you handle the families in terms of the, the families that were both leaving the school and possibly going to come back as well as new families? Sort of how did you manage those priorities moving forward into the pandemic? Sure, sure. From a staffing standpoint, the only real impact on staffing in a negative way was, as I described earlier in preschool, we we didn't have um, as many assistant teachers in there. And I think we made some adjustments to pre-kindergarten assistant. It was all, it all impacted assistant teachers. None of our lead teachers uh, were without employment this past year. And then we were able to hire back some, some assistance during the year as enrollment in both of those grades rebounded. We actually made a decision as a school for the first time ever to hire a permanent substitute teacher as well. So we did invest in that. And, and that was, that was a, a blessing, uh, quite frankly, because you know we, we didn't have the pool of substitute teachers in the community willing to step into a school mm. setting. 
And that allowed us to really, you know, train that person to, to wear many hats. And that person's going to continue at our school going forward. I think that's a position that will continue. You, know, you think about the things you learn that you'll do, that you'll continue that you did during the pandemic, uh, or at least during those times in the pandemic. And, and that's one of them. So staffing, you know, really was, was, was pretty solid. We just repurposed some folks uh, also. Some got more involved in our before care, after care, things like that. From a family standpoint, the, the families that withdrew because of the pandemic, we maintained frequent communication with those families. Our head of school opted to put out communication to our currently enrolled student body and community about once a week. I think it went almost weekly every now and then. I think it skipped and went in alternating weeks. And almost every time that came out, I used that as an, as an opportunity to have a touch point with those families that had withdrawn. And pretty quickly, we had a, a pretty significant influx of, of families returning to us in November when our second trimester started. And then that kind of continued off and on throughout the rest of the year. And those families very specifically said that they really appreciated, A, the results that we were experiencing as a school, but also B, how transparently and frequently we were communicating with them. And so that that just continued. And in fact, our head of school is going to continue either a weekly or an every other week communication like that with families going forward, just because our families have so, so enjoyed that. With potential families, you know, we obviously had to communicate a lot online, you know, through email, through phone, through Zoom. We developed a number of virtual activities, and I can touch on, on that reality for us as a school because it was quite a transition for us. But we did, we were able to host an in-person open house event, very modified though, in October, that had we planned it for two or three weeks later, we would not have hosted, but we were kind of able to squeeze it in. We got very fortunate there. But it just, we just spent an inordinate amount of time on the phone, via Zoom, you know, a lot more electronic communication in the form of emails than I think this office had ever done with families. Part of that's just my philosophy of how we communicate, but part of that was just necessitated by the fact they couldn't pop over and come into the school. Although we did do in-person visits throughout the year, and we actually had a a huge increase in the number of in-person visits. They were just all individual family visits. Very interesting. And and I'd be curious, I guess, maybe on the on the topic of the, you know, returning parent, the parents who had withdrawn, but were still sort of in the community. What did those communications look like from both the head of school? Was it email or was it a blog? Was it sort of to everyone? Was it individual, more individualized? And then what did your follow up look like in response to those, you know, communications from the head? Sure. There were, what the head of school was doing was every week, let's call it. I mean, there were only a couple of times where she skipped and went every other week, but let's call it every week. She was sending an email on Fridays to all of our current families, A, providing an update on where we stood relative to COVID-19. You know, did we have any student cases? Did we have any staff cases? You know, all those kinds of things. And throughout the year, that was fairly positive with only a few exceptions. And so she was sending that. She was also just updating as to you know what we were doing, protocols that were working, and then just other exciting things that were still happening at our school, because we wanted families, you know, families that were with us especially, but families that might consider coming back to us 
and or coming to us uh, to know that we were operating a school as normally as we could, obviously with a lot of different parameters in place, but but we wanted to let folks know we were still delivering a really top-notch education. So, so her intended audience the entire time was our current families. And then I went to her and said, hey, I want to share this with our with our potential returning families. And she thought that was a great idea. So almost every time, probably at least three quarters of the time, I would just push that out. Hers was always an email, no blog or anything. I would just forward her message. I kept a distribution list. I would just forward it and say, hey, I just wanted to share with you what Diane is saying about what's going on at our school. Certainly we'd love to stay in contact with your family, et cetera. And then that started to prompt families to say to us, okay, it looks like things are going well. looks like you guys are doing this well. What if we wanted to return? So it started from like, you know, kind of just touching that toe on the surface of the water to then some people, you know, diving headfirst into the water and coming back to the school. So we, we did that. And that was primarily me doing, you know, having that communication with families. And then as we got a little bit closer to, you know, we had some grades that then started to fill back up and or we were looking at the point of offering sibling enrollment and then, you know, making new offers of enrollment. So kind of mid-year, we start, I guess, late fall into the winter, we started communicating with families on an individual level via phone to kind of find out what they were thinking seriously about whether or not they were going to return for the upcoming school year. That involved our head of school and me making phone calls directly to those families. And again, by that time, the list had dropped in number a little bit because some families had returned. But we just said, look, we're not trying to pressure you. And we want to, A, provide you with an update, but B, kind of see where you might be in your thinking about next year. And in some cases, that resulted in them saying, hey, we're actually ready to return this year. And so we worked through that. And we actually got to the point where we had a couple of grades where we had to go out to our families that had withdrawn because we had legitimate new interest. And we offered them the chance to return first. And that was an awkward conversation saying, hey, we really want you to come back, but we also have an obligation to fill our school and we have the chance to do that. But we're going to give you the chance to return now versus waiting until next year. Otherwise, we can't guarantee your space will be available. I mean, that was an awkward conversation, yet our families really understood it and, and worked through that in different ways with us. So it went from kind of just email, a little bit more blanket to our community, to targeted emails to those families, to then individual conversations with those families. Actually, I'm, I'm going to just interject with a quick logistical question, because I, I forgot to ask uh, about how is your enrollment management department? Is it is it just you or your admissions department? Is it you? Do you have any staff members? Are you working with anyone else on, you know, across teams other than the head of school on all this? Or was it sure. sort of- No, that's a great question. We have two enrollment management staff members. I'm our director of enrollment management. And then I have an assistant director of enrollment management and that's our office, but we get a ton of support. Our head of school is involved in any way I would like her to be involved. 
our three division heads. We have a head of early childhood, lower school, and middle school. Those three division heads are very involved with families, and and they went above and beyond this year as well. They made themselves available for a lot more virtual activity. They were willing to roll with what the the new guy was throwing at them, both in terms of being a new person, but also in terms of you know the pandemic and, and it creating some changed processes. And so directly in our office, two people, but then a, a broader group that really supports. And, and I have a great relationship with our director of marketing as well, which was really important because we needed to market virtual opportunities that, that really had never existed at our school in the past. And so what was then the approach with regard to the marketing as well as the admissions work with the, the new prospective families? How did you all try and you know, present your school as a you know, still strong and unique offering amidst all the uncertainty of the pandemic? Sure. Our, first of all, our director of marketing, you know, we worked together starting last summer, kind of right before and right after I came on board officially on July 1st to really talk about how we were going to increase the frequency and, and expand the topics covered through our social media platforms. And we predominantly had used Twitter and Facebook, although we used Instagram a lot more this past year with families as, as our parents are becoming younger. So too are the platforms that they use, right? So we talked about that a lot. And I'm not a marketing expert, but I, I have enough ideas and, and he's a marketing expert who has ideas as well. So that partnership worked really well. I spent a lot of time. I finally, I, 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 he, I think he got sick of me going to him for website edits and he knew that I was pretty tech savvy. So he gave me access to, to make a bunch of changes to our website. So I, I made that quite a bit more engaging and we'll continue to do that. And then we implemented a lot of virtual opportunities. I mean, I was unpleasantly surprised to find out when I started July 1st that with only the uh, couple of exceptions of a couple of virtual shadow visits for students who seem to be good fits academically, the school really had not pivoted to having virtual opportunities. So starting July 1st and, you know, continuing until probably the end of July, I spent a lot of time developing virtual opportunities for our families. We we worked with a company to do a virtual tour, which is a really neat 3D tour, but more importantly, uh, develop plans for virtual open houses and virtual individual family visits. And we converted it. We had almost every Wednesday, a Wednesday visit opportunity in person. We pivoted that to being a virtual opportunity and, and we just didn't have that infrastructure. It just did not exist. And so we, we moved in that direction and, and we're actually going to do some hybrid things in the upcoming year, even if we can do in-person events for larger groups we're going to, it's going to be a hybrid approach going forward because we learned that in some cases, both parents could be involved more easily through virtual events than in-person events, especially those that are during the school day. So we just had to let families know repeatedly that virtual visit opportunities were there, that we were still there to answer their questions and provide them with information. And our, our open house numbers were actually well up from what they had been in previous years. We added a couple of open house events that we hadn't done. The, the virtual Wednesday events, those were way down in attendance, but I think we had a lot more families come in individually for visits and, and we made a, a slightly controversial decision to not allow our current parents in the building yet offer prospective parents the chance to come mm. to her. Um, and I think they understood, you know, lifeblood of the institution is, is, is tuition revenue in some ways. So I think our parents understood it and, and supported it. 
And so then how was, so one of the things that I've heard in, in chatting with schools a lot is that throughout the pandemic, there was a lot more fluidity in the admissions process where a lot more people might've been inquiring and sort of asking about the school, but it was sort of, you know, in the vein of getting more options and, and seeing what could, you know, they possibly move to and do so touring and, and sort of exploring options, but not necessarily committing. And so how was your experience then sort of down the admissions funnel with regards to applications and then, you know, actually yielding uh, the accepted students? Sure. Um, you know, what's interesting is I think had I been in a kind of a more of a general ability or mixed ability school, I might have seen that, you know, kicking the tire, you know, thing happen a little bit more frequently. Our school is a little bit unique in that, you know, families, they realize pretty quickly if they didn't realize it before they picked up the phone and, and called us or looked on the website, you know, we're a school specifically for gifted students. So, so, so our population is just a small percentage of the overall population, right? So, so that probably limited that reality for us, although we did have families and, you know, even as recently as last week, you know, we'll get families that'll call us and ask us, you know, well, what's your policy on masks? We're looking for a school that either wears them or doesn't wear them. And I had a, a call last week from a family looking for two grades that we happen to not be full in. And I was all excited about the prospect. And then her third question, I think, was whether or not we're wearing masks next year. And right now mm. we are. And she's like, oh, no, we, we want a school where people aren't going to be required to wear masks. I said, well, OK, if you change your mind, let me know. And, and so we had some of that. Our application numbers actually are, are significantly up. And we didn't count as applicants the people who are returning to us. We simply you know, asked them to provide us with updated information. Had we counted those as applicants, we'd be way up. But, but actual applications... Uh, looking back over about a 10-year period, this is probably our second or third highest volume of applications. And again, for somebody to start the application process here, they also have to be committing to, to doing testing or screening for academic ability. And, and so it's not, we don't get very many soft applications. Certainly, we, we don't yield everyone that we admit. But those numbers, the yield rate is actually on par with and maybe even slightly above a typical year, but I, it, it doesn't vary that much from a typical year for us, I think because of the uniqueness of our audience. I have heard differing stories from some of my peers in the area who were getting calls, especially with, with some of the public schools that were going primarily online or doing hybrid models. And parents just, you know, they once that continued for very long, that was not what they were looking for. And I think that did help us enroll some families. It got them in the front door. Then they realized what they were getting at our school beyond just us being available as a school that was doing in-person education during the pandemic. That's great to hear. And I think it's it's awesome that, you know, you were able to see the the effort of all your your work pay off in, in all those those numbers. And and so I guess just my my last question would be more general. I guess what would your advice be to schools who are still struggling with, you know, enrollment, whether it's in the lower grade levels or, or whether, you know, school-wide uh, as a result of the, the pandemic and, and sort of what would your advice to them be going forward in sort of this new era where we're, we're starting to recover, but different areas are experiencing at different speeds and, and yeah, what, what would sort of your advice be? Yeah, I think that the, maybe the biggest piece of advice, again, it depends on what's going on at their school and what's going on historically, right? It's, it's hard to just take a, a snapshot today and say, well, this is what you could do or this is what you should do. 
But in general, keep in mind that uncertainty is going to continue. And, and you know, we may, you know, we might, what we think we know today might be very different than what we think we know in a month or two or three, right? And I would say, you know, continuing to beef up the online presence and offering multiple opportunities, making sure families know that you're still available to them. I, I don't think, some families know just how readily available schools are making themselves um, in this process through planned virtual events or just impromptu, like, hey, instead of you walking in our building and having a tour and getting to meet five people as you walk around, let's intentionally set up an individual visit where you can talk to the division head, you can talk to a coach of a sport, you can talk to the music person, you, you know, and, and that just means that the enrollment office is going to be the coordinator for that, much in the same way it has been in the past, but, but just it's going to happen more frequently. And I would say to enrollment folks, you know, try to control the things you can control. I mean, you can't control what's happening with the pandemic. Try to control what you can control. And that is, first and foremost, in my mind, is always providing a phenomenal customer service experience to families that are looking at your school. How you deliver that experience is very different now than it was, you know, 18 months ago, but that's okay. I mean, and, and, and keep track of what you're, what you've learned about what's working well right now and don't be afraid to continue it. You know, I've taken something that's happened on a weekly basis in person that's been like a two plus hour long experience, which I think is way too long during a workday. And because of the pandemic and what we did this last year, I've made that a hybrid event for the upcoming year. And, and that's going to be about an hour on campus, you know, on our campus now. But yet families are going to get the same amount of information, maybe in a way that's more user-friendly for them. So just keep track of what we're learning and try not, you know, take care of yourself as an enrollment leader. You know, self-care is vital, especially with all this uncertainty. And, you know, hopefully you have a great relationship with your head of school or president or, who, you know, whoever you report to you know, and hopefully that person understands that, that this is a trying time. And hopefully that person is incredibly supportive of your efforts to expand your outreach. Thanks so much, Dwayne. I think that's great advice, especially with regard to, you know, the, the flexibility and the, the self-care I think is really critical for, for everyone right now as we continue to navigate this. So thank you again for, for your time. And uh, I, I hope that you uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening to NAIS Member Voices. Joe will be back next month to discuss national trends on this topic with Amada Torres, Vice President for Studies, Insights, and Research at NAIS. I hope you'll join us. Remember, you can visit NAIS.org slash member voices to explore resources related to Joe's conversation with Dwayne, and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes, or subscribe to automatically receive a new podcast episode in your feed each month. Please be sure to listen, rate, and review each new episode, and then go back and listen to past episodes you may have missed. And don't forget, we always want to hear from you. So please send your questions, comments, and suggestions for who to feature on the podcast to membership at neis.org.